I think we've always been sustainable. Yeah, I think we've always had a sustainability mindset in that, uh, you know, we, we've always watched what performance would do, and we were concerned about uh, maximizing outputs and minimizing inputs and all that. And all that is a component of sustainability. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Beef Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. All right, welcome to another episode of the Beef Podcast Show. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen. I'm a feedlot nutritionist at Iowa State University, and we've got a really exciting guest with us here today, Dr. John Wagner from Colorado State University. He is a professor with expertise in feedlot nutrition and management. He earned a BS in animal husbandry from Michigan State University, an MS in animal science from Oklahoma State, and a PhD in animal nutrition from Oklahoma State University. John has had a storied career in the feedlot business, including management of a large feedlot in Lamar, Colorado, from both the private and academic sectors. And he's currently preparing for retirement from CSU by wrapping up some publications, and maybe we'll hear later about some of the other fun things he has planned for retirement. So welcome to the show, John. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I got to know Dr. Wagner probably first through our multi-state committee, would be my guess, the first time that Dan Loy would have taken me along to one of those meetings. Um, And so that would be the uh, NCCC, CCCCC, as I always call it, uh, (laughs) 308 committee. Yeah, yeah. Um, For those that aren't familiar, uh, the USDA and kind of with the university's land-grant institutions, we have multi-state um, committees, and it's an amazing opportunity to get people who are in sort of similar positions, so feedlot researchers in this case at lots of different institutions, to get an excuse to get together and share an adult beverage and talk about all the fun science that we're all working on, um, everything from doing similar SOPs in the lab to, you know, what's the biggest challenges that we're facing right now, and some collaborative research. So I've worked with Josh McC- um, McCann at Illinois um, lots of others on the committee have done collaborative work. So that's been a, a really oper- a really great opportunity, especially for me as a brand new faculty member who really didn't grow up in the feedlot industry to get a chance to meet folks like yourself, John, who, you know, by that time in 2009, when I started, had already had a long uh, storied uh, career in the feedlot industry. Well, how old do you think I am? You know, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I won't make an answer that. We'll, we'll we'll put some time frame on that, I'm sure, through the questions that are asked and the answers that I provide. Absolutely. Well, I tell Dr. Loy that I go to all the age harassment training at Iowa State so that I can get better at it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, we definitely want to start this by having you kind of give us some highlights of your career. Um, certainly, we all know that it's not usually a direct path from undergraduate to professor. So tell us a little bit about your history, and then I know we're definitely going to follow up on some kind of really unique pieces of your career that you've had. Yeah, like like many of our students in the um, animal sciences, animal husbandry arena, I first went to uh, 
uh, college uh, thinking that you, you went there to be a, a doctor, lawyer, veterinarian, teacher, etc. And it didn't take me long when I arrived at Michigan State to realize that doing clinical work on, on sick dogs uh, just wasn't going to be my my deal. I uh, I decided early on that I was more interested in uh, animal management and prevention of problems rather than trying to treat all these problems. So early on, I made the decision not to go to uh, veterinary school and, and pursue uh, a graduate career instead in, in, in research and, and, and this sort of thing. So um, that be the start of it. And then in my career itself, uh, I spent approximately the first third of my career in largely an extension role in the state of South Dakota as a uh, uh, extension ruminant nutrition specialist was the official title, but I worked largely with feedlot cattle and, and backgrounding cattle. And then the middle third of my career, as Stephanie alluded to, I spent uh, managing a, a research feedlot in Lamar, Colorado for a Continental Grain Company. And uh, that uh, feedlot eventually morphed into... Um, Five Rivers Cattle Feeding and was owned by JBS for a while and now has different ownership. In 2005, they uh, Five Rivers they gifted uh, the facility to CSU and I came on board then as a as a professor. Uh, we ended up closing that research facility in 2012. So for the last uh, 10 years, I've been largely in the classroom teaching uh, uh, animal nutrition and uh, feedlot management and also doing a um, a computer diet balancing course and a graduate course in energetics. So I feel very fortunate that approximately a third of my career was an extension, a third pretty heavy in research, and a third pretty heavy in in the teaching arena. Yeah, you're basically the three stool or the three legs of the land grant institution, right? Yes, very much so. Yeah, very much so. Absolutely. Okay, lots of good questions here that I have for you. So the first one is. Dr. Wagner and I have a, a mutual acquaintance, Dan Loy from Iowa State, and uh, I may have reached out to him before this interview and said, I'm going to talk to John. What do you think I should ask him about? And he gave me lots of good topics, um, but I want to start with this one. He said, I should ask you about sledding on food trays at Michigan State University. So can you tell us about that? Oh, my. Yeah. Uh, if anybody is from Michigan State at any point in time or been there, it the ice arena, I think it was called the Mun Ice Arena, has a sloped roof that extends almost right down to the ground. And during uh, blizzard conditions, we, uh, I don't want to use the word stole or steal, but we borrowed cafeteria trays from one of the dormitories and climbed up on that roof and sledded down the roof uh, uh, in in the snow. So, yeah, uh, I'm guilty as charged there. Uh, I was kind of a wild child in my younger days, uh, a lot calmer now. I like it. I like it. I actually have a, a, a somewhat similar story, but it was in a place that does not get a heck of a lot of, a lot of snow. I did my graduate work at North Carolina State, and we hadn't I hadn't been there six months, and the f- first snowstorm was like, you know, like a quarter inch of snow kind of thing, right? And they closed down the university, and the whole town grinds to a halt. And my roommate at the time, who happened to be an undergrad, was from North Carolina it was like oh my gosh we got snow so we literally like just on our apartment which had a fairly steep hill we had Tupperware lids and we're sliding down that and you know I was like from Iowa right like I'm used to way more snow I was like you people are crazy yeah yeah 
Uh, but I bet in Michigan, there was probably a lot of snow where you were sledding. Uh, yeah, uh, particularly that year. Uh, it was, uh, uh, I believe it was like 1977, 78. And, and winter in Michigan at those times, those years, were particularly heavy snowfalls at that time and and particularly cold. Uh, my family's from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and I remember going home for uh, winter break and 40 below zero temperatures, and that's not wind chill, that's absolute temperature. And um, yeah, it was pretty brutal those late 70s in, in Michigan as far as winter goes. Where are you from in the UP? Well, my family uh, is now in uh, the Escanaba and Gladstone area of the UP, but basically 100 miles straight north of uh, Detroit. Uh, uh, when I graduated from high school, my family moved up there. I, I actually grew up in the Thumb area of Michigan, and if you've talked to anybody from Michigan, they, they generally they generally do this and, you know, point. And it was about 40 miles north of Detroit on a um, small uh, livestock and, and grain farm, basically raising cattle, sheep, hogs, corn, you know, so um, small by today's standards, of course, but I, I learned a lot during those years um, on the farm. Absolutely. We just did a snowshoeing vacation over the recent Christmas holiday. So we're recording this in January of 23. And, and over the recent Christmas holiday, we went to uh, the UP for a snowshoeing vacation. So kind of up by, we were almost up to Copper Harbor. So we oh, were way up to yeah. yeah. And, you know, they, they had already had like 90 inches of snow for right. the season. Right. So, yeah. 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 So let's transition with this idea of snow in mind. Um, one of the things that you have helped or tried to help feedlot producers in particular understand is how we might better deal with these winter storms. Um, you kind of alluded it to in your answer there too. Weather is only getting more variable, more extreme. As we record this today, it was minus five this morning in Iowa. Um, and so tell us a little bit about your thoughts about what producers need to be keeping in mind as they think about winter storm management. Well, um, there's there's two things to that that come to mind. Uh, one is is keep them eating, um, keep them consuming feed of some kind, and, and two, uh, you know, make them as comfortable as you can. Now, both those tasks are difficult in a storm situation. But uh, back in um, oh gosh, it would have been. Uh, 1997 or so, my first uh, first start of winter in uh, southeast Colorado, we had a 30-some-inch uh, snowfall event, 50-mile-an-hour winds and, you know, 15-foot drifts and call out the National Guard, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, one of the things that we did manage to do is we, we kept feeding cattle. Now, by the end, uh, we had run out of most of our commodities, uh, including corn, but we always had our corn silage pile, and we we, we were feeding straight corn silage at the end. But uh, basically, you know, try and keep them eating something. Uh, a lot of feedlots, uh, if they're on a four-ration system, they might drop down to the number three ration with a little more roughage in it. Uh, they might increase the um, uh, rumensin concentration to the uh, a higher, you know, allowable level to help uh, as far as uh, maintaining uh, uniform consumptions, but anything you can do to keep them that meeting is the first and foremost thing. That might include uh, one of the keys is to get into the pen 
and scoop off just the feeding alley, uh, you know, time doesn't allow you perhaps to clean the entire pen, but if you can get the gates opened and, and push snow off the feed alley, uh, that gives the cattle some place to go close to the feed bunk and have a better chance of, of uh, continuing their consumption that way. Yeah, I think that's a good point that we don't always think about. Um, you know, it's always it's sometimes surprising to people how much intakes fall off in the winter, especially in these really, really cold times. But it, it, I, when I explain it to producers, I think if you were warm and cozy in the place that you had bedded down, especially since cattle tend to do things like they lay down before it rains or before it snows because they keep that spot underneath them dry, right? They're kind of protective of that. They tend to not want to get up and wander around. So they're like, no, I'm good. So how do you stimulate that? And really by cleaning off that apron area in front of the bunk, you're encouraging them to say, oh, this is a place where I'm not going to have to use energy and slog through 30 inches of snow to get up to the bunk. And then once one animal's up there, that kind of herd instinct and behavior like, oh, Bob's at the bunk. I better go up there too, right? Yeah, yeah. I I think you you make that the most uh most comfortable place for them to be is up by the bunk and and um, uh, to go along with that, uh, uh, I I really think our feedlots uh, in a winter storm situation underutilized bedding. I know they're reluctant to put bedding out there because they have to eventually haul it out, but. Uh, um, you know, if you if you can use uh, corn stalks or something like that as, as bedding adjacent to the feed apron, I think that'll also help uh, bring those cattle up and and make them uh, make them more comfortable. There's there's some really good uh, uh, data out of uh, South Dakota State showing the uh, performance advantage associated with using bedding. And I realize where I'm located here in Colorado, we're a lot further south than South Dakota, but I still think uh, we could we could uh, make better use of bedding in our feedlots. Uh, you know, one of the comments was, well, we'd have to maintain a supply or inventory of bedding. Well, one of the uh, experiments I did, I'll call it experiment loosely, uh, when I was in uh, Lamar is I brought in a truckload of uh, wheat straw in large square bales, uh, stacked it on the facility, and then let it set to see how long it would last. And, uh, you know, like five years later, I still had a stack of wheat straw there. And so I, I really think that having um, a supply of uh, of uh, bedding on hand and, and hope you don't use it. And, um, and, and when you do use it, then you replace it for the next season. Yeah, a couple of things. One, especially if producers are strategic about it, that can serve as a windbreak if you put it in the right place. It can be a real bad windbreak too if you don't think about where you put it right you don't want to create create drifts where you're like crap i never had those before but yeah so so think about that um if you're ever looking for information on windbreaks i mean obviously all the extension folks have it but wyoming dot created the original windbreak right in terms of thinking about controlling snow over the highway system and stuff so i remember the first time i put up my snow fence at my house i was like what does the Wyoming DOT say for how far it needs to be from the place I'm trying to protect? <laughs> yeah, there was a, a very interesting uh, presentation at an old range cow symposium many, many years ago. And there was a professor there from Montana or Wyoming or someplace like that that had a set of slides. And I mean, it was the god awfulest day you could imagine, snowing sideways and all that. And then he showed, he packed up his graduate students and went out to do some research. And they were building these model 
windbreaks out there in a blizzard uh, trying to measure, you know, what angle to the wind they should be and how tall they should be and and um, how how open they should be, 20% open, 80% closed, you know, that kind of stuff. And it was really interested, and it, it, it made me realize that I didn't have it so bad in graduate school at all compared to them. So it's all about perspective, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing about using corn stalks as, as your bedding source and your windbreak, of course, when you're going to harvest those September, you know, or October, you're, you're past the, the time when you'd have to worry about heat stress, so to speak, uh, by blocking the prevailing, prevailing wind. So, yeah, that's, that's a good point you made there. You don't want a bad windbreak either as far as preventing cooling in the summer. So oh, I was going to circle back. So was that some of Zach Smith's data, his, some of his more recent stuff that you were referring to from the yeah. bedding? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Dathan, Dathan's... There's some, old, there's some older stuff that Carl Burkle would have done, oh gosh, 20 years ago or so too. Yeah. Yeah. So Dathan Smirchak is my current PhD student and he was the master student that helped oh, okay. um, yeah. uh, uh, work with, with Zach. But basically what Dr. Wagner is referring to for our listeners is... Um, studies were basically in South Dakota where it was plenty cold in the winter and they had extreme cold in a part of that study. Um, I actually linked to this study in, in off of my LinkedIn account. We were joking about social media earlier, but LinkedIn is a pretty nice way to get um, to share research and, and other things like that. So this is off of my LinkedIn account earlier in January during one of our cold spells because their data are very nice to show that you know having bedding in those pens really increased the performance of those cattle or perhaps prevented some of the reduction of performance of those cattle during those cold spells because it makes them not lose as much energy to just the process of staying warm. Okay, so um, you mentioned Lamar in there a couple of times, and you talked about that in your introduction too. So one of the things that Dr. Loy also said I should ask you is, what is it like to be gifted to a university? <laughs> yeah, but, well, um, I, I feel a little bit like the uh, a uh, player to be named later and the baseball trades and all that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, that was uh, a, a, an interesting experience uh, coming back to the university. I didn't need to go through the application and interview process and all that kind of stuff. But uh, also from that perspective, uh, uh, even though I was new on campus and trying to find my way around, uh, it was assumed by administration higher up the chain that, you know, I, I had been at CSU since 05 that I knew I knew the ropes as far as all the bureaucracy and and all that. And, and here and I and I can say it now. I told my department head this. It didn't matter what I said. Now it'd take them two years to fire me. And by then it wouldn't matter. You know, some some of these universities have uh, uh, vice presidents in charge of the vice presidents. And, and it just. It's, it's a maze to walk through. That was the biggest shock. The other thing that was amazing to me is when I was on campus at South Dakota State, it was pre-cell phone. And so students would get out of class, walk to their next class in groups of four or five or whatever, visiting and having a big old time. And I get back to uh, Colorado State in, in 2012, and students, they get out of class and everybody's walking by themselves with their nose in the phone. And uh, and and I thought to myself, my, how things changed. And, and just think of all the opportunity that, of inter, you know, interacting with uh, 
fellow classmates that 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 they're missing by by um, you know being being in their phone like that. Uh, related to that, uh, at the time, the wildlife people here at CSU were studying uh, the migration and the pattern of uh, travel by squirrels, and so. Uh, a certain percentage of the squirrels on campus had uh, radio collars on them with these little antenna, and I and I said even the squirrels have their nose in their phone, you know. So <laughs> uh, I felt a little bit like a fish out of water there. So tell us a little bit about, um, I guess maybe maybe from both when it was a private cup, you know feedlot, and then also when it was a part of CSU. You did some great work down there. What are some of the findings or applications of your work that you're most proud of from your time there? Yeah, uh, one of the things we did is we were very involved in the initial studies with uh, Optiflex, uh, Ractopamine from the uh, you know Elanco Animal Health. Uh, so that was a pretty uh, interesting time for me. Uh, um, Going through a study like that and then being inspected by FDA and 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 so on and so forth and uh, that that was real interesting and then then another thing we worked on a lot there was uh, uh, different uh, uh, non-protein nitrogen levels in in uh, feedlot diets and and one of the things that uh, as an industry we're accused of is 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 overfeeding nitrogen but you know we don't do that just for the sake of uh, feeding nitrogen, we, we do have, uh, you know, really good data showing that uh, uh, rumen degradable nitrogen uh, in steam flake diets in particular is is uh, is very helpful. It helps uh, promote uh, uh, more performance. Another interesting thing we were looking at in those days, we were looking at um, uh, fat concentration in the diet and uh, Rule of thumb, talking about 7% fat or 7.5% fat in a feedlot diet. Well, one study I fed eight and didn't see the top. I, I don't know how high we can really go in a, a finishing diet with, um, you know, steam flake corn as the, as the energy source. So, you know, some of those things would be controversial if you, if you talk about feeding 8% fat in a diet. But, uh, you know, we, we were able to get away with some of that. Probably today you couldn't afford to do that anyway. <laughs> well, that's that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, to your protein comment, um, you know, Alan Trinkle was my predecessor here at Iowa State, and you know, he did some nice work showing that, like, when we implant cattle, they see a performance response up to that fourteen, fourteen and a half percent crude protein, which would be higher than what you know NRC would say we necessarily need for that level of performance. But, you know, like you said, we're not doing it intentionally. It's because we tend to be right now doing things like using co-products as an energy source, and we're dragging that protein along with it. But your point is a good one, which is at some point, you know, things like phosphorus and nitrogen, we need to do as good a job as we can of bringing all those into kind of tight alignment with what the animal actually requires. Yeah, you said uh, something about... uh you know, phosphorus and nitrogen and stuff. One of my big experiences in, in Lamar was working with high sulfate water. Uh, we uh, we would suffer through 2,500 ppm uh, sulfate uh, during the summer. And if we could get water supply at 1,500, we thought that was a luxury. And uh, so managing the sulfur issue was a, was a big thing that I worked at while in, while in Lamar. And and uh, 
one of the things we learned is that uh, cattle will indeed acclimate to higher sulfur levels. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, the other problem that you'd have is uh, stacking, uh, I'll call it stacking of risk factors, in that if you're dealing with poor sulfate or a lot of sulfates in your water, you need to watch how much of the byproducts, the co-products that you feed is just, you know, it's a fact of life that if you you have high sulfate water, you probably can't feed as much of the uh, distiller's grains and that kind of thing in, in your diet. So, um, you know, managing those special problems is one thing that we did in Lamar as well. Absolutely. And, you know, your sulfate work was part of the stuff that we cited later in some of our sulfur reviews from Iowa State. Just, you know, that's one of the big things I worked on when I first came here because they were like, well, we're killing cattle from high sulfur. Go fix it. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So, and, and, to, and to your point there, right, producers often don't necessarily remember that the water is such an important piece of that math, right? So your total sulfur that that animal is consuming is as much from the water sometimes or more than it is actually from the feed. And you're right, you push them over the limit if you're like, well, we're tolerable on the water, but we brought in something, you know, molasses or core gluten feed or distillers or something else that was higher in sulfur and, and it pushes them over the limit. Or transitioning cattle at the same time when we had some of those high sulfur, right? When the pH was really kind of roller coastering. Yeah, that that's exactly right. And then early on, um, we were taking... Um, wet distillers, for example, directly from the plant and not mixing that and, and diluting out the bad loads with the, with the uh, less, uh, less sulfur loads that you get a more uniform product up. One of the trials that we did at Lamar is uh, we had a high sulfur uh, distiller solubles and a low sulfur distiller solubles and used a random number generator to decide which one we'd feed in a given day. And uh, the variability on a day-to-day -day basis um, increased death loss, uh, you know, from a percent and a half or so on yearlings to like five or six percent. It was a, it was an interesting study to do as well. The bottom line is, is you know, be careful of your uh, distiller source and uh, make sure they are indeed uh, uh, doing something to try and make the uh, product they're sending out, the co-product they're sending out. Uh, more uniform in sulfur as opposed to highly variable. Yeah, I think communication was a big challenge with a lot of those uh, merchandisers when they were first getting those first several years. I think that's gotten tremendously better, and they're they're much more aware of the of the risks. I am curious. Do you think like your random number generator study? Um, so I assume that was with steam flake corn. Yes. Yeah. Do you think if you were to go back and do that study again, but to maybe manage it with a higher roughage inclusion? you would have a pretty significant decrease in that death loss. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I, I think you would because, uh, you know, that, of course, is related to pH and the disassociation of hydrogen sulfide and all that uh, rumen uh, stoichiometry. That's a big word, isn't it? I used to know what, <laughs> When I was in organic chemistry, I used to know what that word meant. But, uh, um, yeah, that that's a good point. Uh, pH would have a big impact on that. So if you use more roughage... Uh, you can get away with feeding uh, a more variable product or a higher sulfur product uh, because of the um, increase in rumen pH as opposed to a high steam flake corn diet. Yeah, absolutely. I was actually going to ask you, so 
if you came from Michigan um, and then South Dakota, but you were at Oklahoma there too. So at Oklahoma State, was that your exposure to steam flake corn? Uh, yes, that that and also uh, sorghum grain. Uh, one, oh. of the fir- one of the first questions I asked when I went down there to interview for uh, graduate school is I asked to see some sorghum grain. We, we just didn't have it in Michigan at all in those years. Um, so, yeah, that was a big uh, cottonseed cake was another one. Um, and uh, uh, tarantulas, that was another one. What is that? <laughs> yeah, I, I did I did some uh, supplementation studies of uh, cattle out on range, and we had these rubber feed pans, and after they are done eating their supplement, we would always turn those feed pans upside down, and uh, quite frequently you'd go the next morning to turn one over, and there'd be a tarantula staring up at you that was underneath that feed pan. So that was... That kind of shocked this Michigan boy too. So, what is the feeding value of a tarantula? I I don't I don't know <laughs> I don't know, but uh, well, um, you know those hairy legs. I wonder what kind of roughage value they have. Some scratch factor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh goodness. Okay, so. I wanted to give you a chance to tell the listeners a little bit about the sustainability initiative that CSU has been ha- having uh, happen over the last few years. I know you've got some recent hires there in the feedlot sector um, with Pedro Carvalho, but also others. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about what that's looking like? Yeah, we, we also hired Dr. Sarah Place here um, in the sustainability role. Um, uh, I have, well, I, I'll say it, it's controversial. Um I I think we've always been sustainable. Yeah, I think we've always had a sustainability mindset in that uh you know, we we've always watched what performance would do and we were concerned about uh maximizing outputs and minimizing inputs and all that. And all that is a component of sustainability. Uh and so I'm a little bothered by uh that terminology right now. Uh, so it used to be known here at CSU as the uh, Sustainable Livestock Systems, uh, blah, 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 something else, right? And now it's been rebranded as Ag Next. And, uh, you know, what what they're trying to do is get a message out to the public that uh, we are concerned about the environment and how we care for our planet and all that kind of stuff, you know, and and also get the word out to producers that there are some things that you can do to help uh, uh, mitigate uh, uh, our impact on the environment. And so they're putting together a, a team of scientists and uh, um, uh, people to indeed investigate that. And, and our, our couple of latest ones we've hired was uh, Pedro Carvalho, um came from the um, uh, desert of research station in uh, California and El Centro. I think that's where it was. And uh, then also Sarah Place, who came to us from from Elanco Animal Health, and they're going to be uh, working in uh, this arena. Um, their, their appointments are largely uh, outreach, meaning they'll be uh, very visible to the public and producers and out in the state. Uh, um, at CSU, uh, uh, we call a lot of those positions outreach positions as opposed to the traditional extension term, but basically uh, um, that's that's what they're indeed uh, on board for. There's going to be some additional hires in that arena. Not sure exactly what positions, but uh, uh, it's it's 
it's going to be quite interesting. I, I'm, I'm excited for what they're going to bring to the table, and and uh, um, they're 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 getting going in a big way. Yeah, I think I've seen other lists has some like like a forage nutritionist and some other things, which is is good to see that that kind of whole picture. Yeah, and a, a big uh, a big data person that handles uh, uh, you know data management, data manipulation, and and that can handle some of the um, really uh, sophisticated data sets that that they're generating, and and they they've have a, a dairy person hired, and uh, so in uh, economists and a very integrated approach around uh, the sustainability question. Okay, great. So thanks for telling us a little bit about that. Um, the data thing makes me think of something else that I knew I wanted to talk to you about, and that was um, your pension for meta analysis. So do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about what a meta-analysis is and maybe tell us a little bit about some of the meta-analysis that you've been involved in or maybe why you like that approach? Yeah, um, what I like about that approach is that if if you uh, are visited by pharmaceutical company A, uh, that person would come in with a stack of data supporting their product. And, and that would be largely... Uh, Handpicked, you know, they they would bring in the positive studies and share with you those, and uh, you wouldn't see everything else. And so, what this uh, meta analysis does is it allows you to go through and find as many studies that uh, apply to a particular problem, and uh, look at uh, the effects of those studies um, on the overall picture, whether or not. Um, you know, basically, I suppose it's uh, equivalent to the majority of the studies having this effect and uh, uh, trying to outline what the effect would be across a wide variety of locations and studies and, and all this, as opposed to looking at, you know, a hand-picked handful of, of positive studies. So I've been involved in looking at that with various feed additives and then also uh, uh, looking at it with... Uh, uh, implant programs and, and those kind of things. Um, one of the one of the problems with it is that uh, we've had a tendency over the years to publish only the positive studies and negative data. Uh, you know, negative results uh, aren't aren't published. So you have to use some techniques to try and sort through that whether or not there's a a good representation of um, you know positive and negative studies. Uh, uh, present and basically, you're looking at the shape of the bell-shaped curve, basically, um, to try and make that determination. And and so, yeah, I, I like that approach. It's been used in the medical arena a long time, and we're seeing more of it now in uh, animal sciences. Yeah, it's a it's got a good. Um, so, as a part of that statistical analysis, you can account for well-powered studies that had lots of replication. And give them more weight than studies that had very limited replication, and that can be so that weighting factor is one of the things that can be a really nice thing because you know one of our one of the challenges, I guess, maybe with research as we're both feedlot nutritionists is thinking about small pen individual animals, the experimental unit, or small bunks as the experimental unit at the university for that kind of mechanism of action discovery based research. And then looking at that at the applied scale level where you've got 100 head or 200 head in a feedlot where you're not going to have 
individual intake. You could have a lot of cattle to get good intake numbers, but you can be stronger on something like carcass data or health data and things like that. So that's where I think the meta-analysis can really help kind of start to tie together some messaging for producers to understand what those results mean. Yeah, and the other thing that you have to be careful of, too, is, and I asked uh, some of the meta-analysis gurus this, uh, people would respond, well, th that doesn't describe my circumstance or whatever, but in meta-analysis, uh, variation is good because you want to look at the response across a wide variety of conditions and factors and, and trying to tease out, you know, whether or not there is something there strictly due to the uh, to the article in question. So in meta-analysis, variation is good. In our standard hypothesis-driven research, uh, you try and minimize variation. Yep. You know, so it's, it's, it's two different mindsets there. And then that's a hurdle that some people have to overcome. I, you know, we have, Stephanie, we have colleagues that, that will uh, just badmouth meta-analysis up one side and down the other. And I think if you try and think of it in terms of what a traditional study would do, uh, that's where you get into some trouble. Do you think it's going to be even harder in the future to have enough papers or enough data sets to be able to do meta-analysis? Because we are kind of moving to this point now where we don't replicate a lot of research, right? It's like, oh, somebody's already done that. It's time to move on because research is so expensive. It, you know, there's not a lot of incentive to say, well, we should do that again. You know, we'll do it 10 times and see how many times it does what we expect it to do. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I think we've moved away from uh, the the lack of publication with respect to negative data. We're we're publishing more and more of those studies that don't show an effect, and I think that's good. Uh, but I do, I do think uh, the players in this arena are becoming fewer and further between. That you know, it used to be that several universities would do lots of great feedlot studies, and that number is just dwindling all the time. You know, you think of um, you know Iowa State and Oklahoma State and. And and some of those places still do great work along those lines, but uh, others, uh, the support has virtually gone to nil and uh, is very hard to get certain studies funded. And, and uh, a lot of it has morphed into strictly product testing because you have to pay the bills somehow. So, yeah, I think, I think it's going to be hard to get enough uh, decent studies in order to do uh, some of those uh, analyses. So I want to ask you some your for your thoughts kind of on what you've seen as a snapshot over your career. So I want to start with kind of so sometimes I like to call our cattle today the modern cow, right? Or the mm -hmm. the modern the modern steer who can gain four pounds oh. a day and finish at fifteen hundred yeah. pounds. You know, what are your thoughts on how that beast in the feedlot has changed over the decades since you've been um, involved in research? And what do you how do you feel we're doing in terms of understanding his requirements? Yeah, um, the the big difference now as compared to when I started is it used to be uh, every steer was sold at about 1,100 pounds regardless of degree of fatness. And, uh, you know, we used to talk about four-tenths of an inch cover being an ideal end point. And basically now that describes a, a yearling feeder steer, basically. And, and so uh, that's been a, a big change to go to um, um, these uh, heavier weights. 
uh, you know, going to 1,500 pounds now instead of 1,100. It used to be they're all sold live rather than formula basis. And so one of the things that's happened is, a couple of things that have happened is, you know, feedlot managers need to be uh, experts in, in carcass quality and, and uh, carcass endpoint and, and carcass value and those kind of things. Uh, and then the other thing on a negative perspective is that we've inherited a bunch of problems, so to speak, that are associated with feeding to heavier weights, whether that's uh, feet and leg issues, uh, uh, liver abscess issues, feedlot heart disease issues, those kind of things. Uh, you know, I'm I'm convinced that this increase in feedlot heart disease we see is 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 just like uh, you know coronary disease in in adult or humans. Uh, you know, obesity related and and excess weight and and these sorts of things. So uh, that's that's the big difference is the weights that we're feeding to now. Yeah, and we've been doing some research recently on, on as your to your point about how much fatter these cattle are when we harvest, right? So since they are so much heavier, you know, most of our NRC guidelines, actually, if you look at the table in the NRC, we have cattle that don't even fit on that table anymore, right? It kind of maxes out around 1,250, 1,300 pounds. They've got cattle that are, I'm starting them on beta agonist trials, heavier than any cattle that are on that table in the NRC. So average choice would have been 28% fat and our cattle have been 31 to 32% fat going out the door, but that's what they take to have half an inch to six tenths of an inch of back fat and to be mostly choice to high choice and low prime. So it is, it is a different beast that we're feeding today. And it's so interesting because fat is metabolically active and we have not thought about that the way that like the human researchers are really starting to dig you, right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And um, uh, I was on... Um... Uh, review panels for some of the USDA projects, and and the amount of uh, human literature in the obesity world that is cited in some of these, that's starting to be cited in some of these feedlot-oriented studies is amazing, because I think, Stephanie, I think they're starting to, we're starting to make that realization that fat is indeed a metabolically active tissue, and and uh, where has that been studied mostly is in the human arena. So uh, that's that's a good observation. Yeah. And I mean, as a mineral nutritionist, I've always appreciated this. But the cool thing is that at the cellular level, we're all pretty much the same creature. And so in terms of, you know, there's always some subtle differences between species. But the things that they have learned on the human arena are often very applicable to what we can do on the cattle side and vice versa. Yeah, ab- Absolutely. One of the reasons why that I'm, I made the decision to retire is that uh, when I was trained and when I was starting my career, we we didn't we didn't go there at all. Uh, we we didn't we didn't worry about integrating what we learn in humans with uh, what we do with our livestock species. And I and I just feel that myself, uh, I'm not prepared to uh, you know I'm not I'm not comfortable with that. I just I don't know enough. I wasn't trained that way and. And uh, so that's that's one of the reasons why I'm uh, trying to uh, back away some and, and retire. I'm not going to disappear, but uh, uh, there's there's uh, uh, a lot smarter and younger people than me out there to you know continue this. Well, you've set them up on a good track. So tell us a little bit about what your plans are for retirement. I heard that you're a gardener. What kind yeah. of garden do you have? Uh, 
vegetables. I, I really like uh, growing pumpkins, and uh, uh, so so I raise pumpkins for the grandkids, that kind of a deal. And the other thing that's kind of interesting is uh, uh, we have uh, a largest zucchini contest at our church is that the the gardener that can grow the largest zucchini, uh, you know, gets a prize. We all put a dollar in the hat, that kind of a deal. And so I, I like growing squash and, gar- and uh, pumpkins. And then also um, I do some um, of the uh, traditional, uh, you know, green beans and peas and, and that vegetable vegetable stuff. I do a lot of that. And then another thing I like to do is a lot of woodworking um I call my style a Jack Pine Savage look. Uh, we, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't use a lot of sandpaper. I don't use a lot of uh, uh, intricate uh, um, work as far as uh, a router is concerned and cutting smooth edges and all that. It's it's more yellow pine and and I like it. It's a, the style and and then we do some camping and and that kind of thing and. Um, so anyway, that's, that's what the plans are. I do, I do, um, have, um, I, I do have a consulting client that I work with and, and maybe I'll do a little bit more of that, but, uh, um, I'm, I'm excited for it. It's, it's time. Well, you've always been a, um, you know, a pretty prolific writer and, and author. Did I hear that you were also maybe thinking about a fiction career potentially? Well, I don't, some people would say some of my research is a fiction career, right? <laughs> oh, you you teed that one right up. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, uh, those those that would disagree with me, I suppose. But yeah, um, I I heard a story about uh, um, a delivery of cats from the eastern part of the United States along the Santa Fe Trail to San Francisco. You know, I'm sitting there thinking, and I said, "That's that's a book that has to be written, has to be researched and written." So, I don't know if that's the topic, but uh, one of my one of my ambitions is to write uh, uh, some kind of a, a book of fiction too. Nice, and obviously the title writes itself, right? Herding cats, yeah, herding cats, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. Uh. Very nice. Well, I've got into fiction, um, published my first book during the pandemic. So if you ever need any tips, I'll, I'll be I'll be happy to touch base. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, clearly anyone can do it if I can do it. So <laughs> it's time for our famous three. Okay. Well, I think we're ready for our final three questions here. Okay. So we can have a little chat about this. So question number one, what is your favorite beef resource? My favorite beef resource is it's kind of hard to uh uh pick a single one but I do like the University Station research reports and and I see a big uh a a, a huge thing that happened many years ago uh Danny Sims and company out of K-State uh, put a lot of those resources at a, on a database that you could search them uh electronically and uh, I saw that as a real turning point as far as, uh, you know, working in this arena. So, you know, Iowa State does them and Nebraska does them and K-State does them. So I, I like the university research reports. From a publication perspective, a peer-reviewed publication perspective, I like to use Applied Animal Science, the uh, uh, publication by the uh, 
professional animal scientist. Uh, um, it used to be known as the Professional Animal Scientist, the American Registry of Professional Animal Sciences, ARPAS. I, I like to use that. But my favorite would be the uh, uh, various university uh, research reports. Yeah, I think that's a great suggestion. This has been a really fun question to hear because I think other than hearing the beef NRC from a few of our nutrition guests, we've heard a lot of different answers for this one. And I'm not sure anybody had yet said the station reports or the university reports. Um, and I think that is an amazing kind of, so oftentimes people, the data are published there before they're out in a peer-reviewed publication. And oftentimes they're written for language that's more consumable by a producer. So that's a great place for folks to look for data. You mentioned the NRC. Uh, one of the things that I've seen the NRC kind of morph into is I see it as a uh, uh, a beef cattle biology textbook in that it has lots and lots of basic information about uh, carbohydrates in beef cattle and about fat in beef cattle and protein and minerals and so on and so forth. And it used to be a, basically a compilation of tables, of requirement tables, and now it's it's evolved into much more than that. So I see it as a good resource for some basic knowledge along those lines. But as far as uh, uh, staying current with with new research and all that, uh, you know, it's 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 static. It's one point in time. They they renew it every fifteen years or whatever it is. So, absolutely, totally agree. Okay, second question: What's a non-beef related resource that you're or a non-beef related book that you're reading right now? Um, I uh, read a lot of uh, World War II history, and I'm, I'm currently reading a book uh, called Stalingrad. It's about the Battle of Stalingrad in, in World War II. The, many believe it's the turning point of uh, World War II where uh, the Nazis suffered a tremendous setback. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I, I do read a lot of that stuff, and that's what I'm into right now. Are you a big reader? Yes. I, I try and read every night something non non-career uh, related, something different, uh, you know, um, what, whatever the history, it's usually history that I read. Nice. Yeah. I'm the same way. It's, it's fiction for me, but I need something that's not work related so that I can sleep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And <laughs> turn the brain off. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the final question is, um, is there a trait in someone that you admire that has helped make them successful? Um, my, uh, my trait that I uh, uh, look for is uh, persistence. Uh, no matter how many times you get knocked down, you get back up and keep trying. No matter how many times you get knocked down, you get back up and keep trying. You know, and I can repeat that and repeat that and repeat that. And so uh, that's that's to me is is the number one uh, trait. It, it's not uh, those that are successful in every endeavor that they do. Uh, you know, if, if you if you succeed in everything, you're not learning anything. I mean, the best way to learn is to fail. And my gosh, you know the the number of stupid ideas that I've had uh, greatly greatly outpaces the number of good ones. And and so, yeah, persistence is what I would say is the trait. Yeah, I think that's a really good one. Something that we sometimes have challenges with in certain individuals, but persistency, resiliency, tenacity, grit, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, John, this has been really fun having a conversation with you here today. Hopefully your first podcast wasn't too painful. No, no, it wasn't. It's, it's uh, you know, the host, uh, you, yourself, and the organization, they, they've made it uh, painless and 
you know, and helped me through it a lot. I, I have, I just haven't done this. I just, I did the online teaching thing during the pandemic and didn't get along very well with it at all. But uh, this having this two-way dialogue was, was uh, very, very useful, I think. Excellent.